I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Hello, everybody. Welcome to, to March. It's March now. It's a brand new one. Yes. Happy March. Happy birth month to me. <laughs> yeah. It is my month. The whole thing. The whole thing. You get one twelfth of the year. Well... My birthday falls very much in the middle of it. It's even one of the so big it ones. It's 31 days. It is my month. You know what? If St. Patrick's Day can take up, like, all of it, yeah. I can take up all of it as well. Yeah. You did drive all those snakes out of Ireland and whatnot. You, you deserve some recognition. I want to know what that has to do with drinking, but... <laughs> what I want to know is, what are you going to tell us about today, dear? This is an interesting episode. I like to think they all are. Because I approach this one like my office supplies one. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to talk about two things. <laughs> we're going to talk about shopping carts, and we're going to talk about Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> what do they have in common, dear? We'll find out. Okay. I'm hoping we find something so that that will tell me what I can title this episode. <laughs> You can title it, Elena had a margarita right before this. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be interesting. So what? what's first on, on the agenda? Tissues. 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 That's what's first. One of your favorite things. Tissues are my favorite thing. We were just talking earlier today that, that you're like a squirrel and, and the travel tissue packs are your acorns. Yes, I leave them everywhere, so I'm never without a tissue. Even if you don't remember where they are, you're never more than a few feet from one. My worst days at work are when my box of Kleenex runs out. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, have to spend three hours with no tissues. Hate to see it's it. It's awful. So, disposable facial tissues. Yeah, very timely. Uh, so, their they're origin. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they existed for a very long time. Okay. In a very different form than what we know now. Oh. Uh, and that can be traced back uh, to Japan. There were accounts of disposable nose-blowing devices <laughs> okay. uh, being used in the 17th century. So almost as long as there have been Europeans in North America, there have been disposable tissues in Japan. Yes. Okay. They they were described as a soft, a soft silky paper uh, the size of someone's hand. Mm-hmm. And in a written account, it was, yeah, they were used for like blowing their nose and then people would discard them. Mm-hmm. That's really about all I could find out about that <laughs> period of like... Uh-huh. Facial tissue. The tissue we know now mm-hmm. came into being in 1924. Well, it took you long enough, my uh, goodness. Kleenex, the brand, which is often used as like describing just what a tissue is. Mm-hmm. Like, give me a Kleenex. Doesn't matter what brand. Uh, but that brand was the first one to be introduced. Uh, and it was made by the company Kimberly Clark. Uh, but we need to go back much farther Far- Before we talk about them coming into existence. I love Kimberly Clark. Since you've been gone. You would never get that confused. That is your favorite <laughs> singer ever. <laughs> Don't lie to the people. Yeah. Yes. My life would suck without you, dear. It's true. So Kimberly Clark and Co. was founded in 1872 by four dudes. We got John A. Kimberly, Havala Babcock, Charles B. Clark, and Franklin C. Shattuck. So it was almost called Babcock, Shattuck, and Co. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, and it was founded in Neenaw, Wisconsin, which is a place I've never heard of. <laughs> uh, and they operated paper mills. Mm-hmm. Mm. So before World War I, the company discovered a product in Germany uh, at a German paper uh, pulp or a German pulp and paper plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they brought it back to America and they development they developed it and trademarked it. And they called it cellucotton. It was a material made from wood pulp, but it was five times more absor- absorbent than cotton and mm-hmm. less expensive. And, and cellucotton because it's made from cellulose, tree fiber. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Um, so they mass produced it. And during World War One, real cotton was in short supply. So Kimberly Clark provided the U.S. military with cellucotton, and it was used as filters in gas masks and also as surgical bandages. Mm. And then after World War One, they found themselves with a large amount of cellucotton and no market for it. Like, <laughs> what do we do with this? They heard about accounts that came from the American Fund for the French Wounded, who received letters from Army and Red Cross nurses who apparently started using the surgical dressings on their own, wadding them up and making them into makeshift pads during their periods. Okay. Okay. All right. Walter Luke was in charge of finding a new use for cellucotton. And when he heard about this, he saw the potential for profit as half of the population could basically be marketed to. Mm -hmm. Like if we made this into a... like half of half of the population. Well, yeah, yeah, based on age and stuff. But yeah. like, okay, like half will probably need to use this type of thing sometime. Some, yeah. <laughs> it's still a large market share. <laughs> um, so disposable sanitary napkins existed uh, since 1888, but they were expensive, uh, not widely used, and were not really made from products that were like absorbent and great. Okay. Mm-hmm. Absorbency, you'd think, would be, like, a priority there. I mean, a lot of the stuff that exists now that's considered, like, absorbent didn't exist. Right. You were dealing with, like, cotton or wool. God, I hope it's not wool. (laughs) (laughs) Like, let's not go there. Wool should not go there. That's true. But most people are just, like, making their own. Yeah, yeah. Because money. Using just, you know... Old fabrics and whatnot. The, uh, his plan was to create a new disposable option that would be cheaper and a little bit more accessible to people. It would still be outside of a lot of people's price range, but yeah. more accessible. And obviously more absorbent because it's this like four times as absorbent as cotton product. But how can you know they haven't yet invented the blue liquid? <laughs> the blue liquid is very important. <laughs> or so I understand. So he approached different firms to manufacture the product for the company, but they all refused and argued that, first off, it was too personal. Mm -hmm. We can't have our employees doing that. (laughs) Uh, And also, you're not going to sell this crap. Mm -hmm. But Walter kept pushing, and eventually he got Kimberly Clark to agree to manufacture it themselves. Though there was pushback from higher-ups who were like, (laughs) Uh, excuse me, I, I've read your business plan, and I think it's very gross. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The product was made by hand, primarily by female workers, mm-hmm. because they weren't going to hire dudes to do that. <laughs> uh, and they called it Kotex, a play on words for cotton texture. 
Uh-huh. And yeah. that's that's the thing. That's like still a major Co- brand name in the space. Kotex is one of like the, the big- two major US brands for period supplies. Yeah. Um and so the product again was an improvement, but where it was a real groundbreaker was on its marketing. Oh, so they did invent the blue liquid. <laughs> Not yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so they started advertising in Good Housekeeping magazine uh, with ads that never showed what the product was, <laughs> but described it. Was the word freshness used? Yes. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> okay. So their ads, like, described what it was. It was a pad. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it also, like, gave details on how to get it. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how you can acquire it at a store. But all of their marketing was very similar to the crap we get yeah. nowadays. That's all like ladies on bikes, ladies that are active Going and playing doing tennis. things, and playing tennis in white shorts. <laughs> like one of them was all about like ensuring summer comfort and poise in the daintiest of frocks. <laughs> And various ones. I, I found some of the ads. We'll, we'll link them. Oh, good. And it, it's very interesting to me to see that something that started way back then mm-hmm. is still like the same concept used today. Mm-hmm. Because back then, like, like so much of it was showing women having, you know, being out and about. Right. At a time when you really probably weren't or you were... <laughs> very much concealing that it was happening which is Mm -hmm. still the way it is today but back then it was all about being like this this being in this modern world this modern woman yeah and having to like all of their ads are very interesting because it's talking about like you're a modern woman in this modern world but we're not gonna tell you what this product is because hush 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 this is a very (laughs) embarrassing thing we can't talk about it Mm mm-hmm and that's kind of the same thing that's existed until up in v- till very recently in ads for these types of products. Yeah. Like, I think it was only in the past, like, three years that they used, like, a red liquid and, like, people <laughs> almost lost their minds. <laughs> and so they, you still just see the blue. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, in 1919, Woolworth Department Store here in Chicago, actually, sold the first box of Kotex. To a man who had no idea what it was, but he's been seeing these ads. Feels like his wife could be more modern, whatever that means these days. Kotex's slogan became, ask for them by name. Ah. Ask for Kotex. Mm -hmm. It was used in all of their advertising, and it was a way for buyers to get it. Because at this time, the only way to purchase products, really were from shop clerks, which were usually men. Right. And you had to go up to them and tell them what you wanted for them to go grab on a shelf and bring it back to you. Mm -hmm. If you say, hey, I want some Kotex, it's going to be a lot easier than, please give me those disposable sanitary napkins. We're not a restaurant supply (laughs) store, ma'am. I don't say, what? (laughs) Yeah. Or I'm not going to touch that. Yeah. If you just say Kotex, and it was in, like, a box that was, like, blue, and it didn't have, like, any description on it other than just Kotex (laughs) and, like, how many. Mm -hmm. So, like, it was very much like a we are hiding what this is. Mm -hmm. So that became their slogan um, to try to avoid less awkward interactions. But even with that, it was a pretty slow acceptance 
of people starting to purchase the product. Right. Um, and that was until uh, 1926 when Montgomery Ward um, actually began advertising Kotex in their catalog. And then mm. within a year, uh, they were up to $11 million in sales. <laughs> Kotex also became one of the first self-service items in American retail history. <laughs> Because the uh, shop clerks don't want to handle them? Well, so... Like they're, they're going to get a curse laid on them? Knowing that this was an issue mm. of, like, the buyer need and, and having these awkward interactions, um, the company, Kimberly Clark, actually started pushing for retailers to set up a self-service situation at their stores, where women could go grab what they needed and there would be a pay box back there where they could drop their money uh-huh. and they would never have to interact with a clerk. <laughs> so it's like a vending machine, but without the machinery. It's yeah. Just replaced with the honor system. Yes. Okay. And apparently it like was pretty groundbreaking to yeah. their sales. But while Kimberly Clark was waiting for Kotex to take off, they were still like, wow, we have this product to sell and we need to like make money. What can we do? <laughs> we, we still have so much of this uh, uh, cellucotton, cellucotton. Yeah. And yeah. like. How do we sell a cellucotton? Yeah. And how, how do we just keep bringing money into our business? Because this new thing's not working. They developed the first facial tissue which was introduced in 1924, which they called Kleenex, which mm-hmm. was a play kind of connected to the Kotex. So it was like clean, like mm-hmm. we're going to clean something. But, but still then, an X. Yes. From the X line of products. Yes. It was always referred to as facial tissue, and it was not for blowing your nose as we know it now. Uh-huh. That was never the intention. Kleenex facial tissue was marketed as a way to remove cold cream. It was a disposable, sanitary substitute to a face towel. Huh. Uh, And they marketed it using Hollywood makeup departments, uh, movie and Broadway stars, Mm -hmm. who all wore a lot of makeup. And their patent in 1924 actually described it as an absorbent pad or sheet for removing cold cream. Well, there you go. And that's why it's facial tissue and not, like, a nose tissue. Everybody's been doing it wrong your whole life. (laughs) Everybody listening to this has been using Kleenex wrong. So how did it start being used as tissues like we know now? Well, one day, either Kimberly or Clark got a cold. Uh, Actually, just the people buying it already (laughs) started to use it that way. It, it just became a product that was adapted mm-hmm. into that type of use. They started to hear about it, but they're like, well, no, it's still like it's used for cold cream. That's mm-hmm. what it's for. That's how we're marketing it. There was a company uh, researcher who tried to get the heads of advertising to market it for cold and allergies as well. Mm-hmm. But they initially declined. <laughs> they're like, No. Um, And it wasn't until a newspaper poll happened in 1926 in Peoria, Illinois, that they kind of changed their minds. Because that poll that they took stated that 60% of tissue users used it for their nose. Mm -hmm. And the other 40% was split up into multiple other categories. Right. 
And so that's when they committed to a small ad that mentioned <laughs> that it could be used as a disposable handkerchief. I mean, if you want, I guess. Um, but within four years, it changed and was marketed with don't carry a cold in your pocket. Oh, because if you're using a non-disposable handkerchief... You're going to put it back in your pocket. And it's just all germs in there. Yeah. Ah. But if you're blowing your nose and you're discarding it, you're no longer carrying around those germs. There you go. The pop-up tissue box that we know now Mm -hmm. uh, was just introduced in 1928. That was not originally how it was introduced. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The following year... The folding technique took some engineering, I'm sure. Uh, and the following year, we got those weird colored Kleenexes that, like, grandma's always had. <laughs> uh, and in 1932 came the pocket packs that there I appreciate so much. And if you plant one, eventually a Kleenex tree will sprout. No. No? Okay. I wish. Uh, so when World War II happened, um, that led to a rationing of paper products. And the production mm-hmm. of tissues was very limited. But wartime rationing of cotton led to tissues. Yeah. So Kimberly Clark started manufacturing bandages and dressings for the war effort again. (laughs) And then once rationing was over, they went back to making tissues. Oh, right. Um, So that is how tissues came to be. One product that I very much appreciate in my life. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's one topic out of the way, but I was told there were two. Yes. I was promised a second. So uh, the next thing we're going to look at is shopping carts. Ah, the the old shopping trolley for our our British listeners. Yeah, so according to the internet, they can be known as trolleys, baskets, carriages, wagons. Carriages? Kuhuddles? Kuhuddle? No, there's no L. Kuhudder? Kuhudder. And buggy. And I would like the internet to know... That no one in Southeast Michigan uses uses the term buggy. I don't know why it kept saying that in certain regional areas, including Southeast Michigan, that we use that term. No one uses that term. It's not a buggy. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, dear. I'm sorry. You know, anybody can edit Wikipedia. You can be a hero. And, and... Like, I it mentioned, like, parts of Pennsylvania, which I kind of got because I thought maybe it was, like, the Amish population out there, <laughs> uh-huh. which would make more sense if it was like the thumb of Michigan. We have a lot of Amish and Mennonite populations up there. Sure, sure. Southeast Michigan, though, is like Detroit. Yes. And Metro Detroit. No one uses buggy. Uh, so to look at shopping carts, mm-hmm. we need to first look at the grocery store. It's home ecosystem. Yes. So st- stores. Mm-hmm were pretty much categorized by what they sold originally. Right. Okay, you had your dry goods store, you had your green grocer, you had your butcher, etc. Mm-hmm. And those were all operated by clerks. And you would be like, this is what I want. And be like, great, let me get that. And they put back, pack it up for you and you go off. Ask for Kotex by name. Way before ask for Kotex by <laughs> name. But that was still like the but, situation. Yeah, yeah. In 1859, uh, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company was established. This would be later known as uh, the chain A&P, which no longer exists. They dropped everything but Atlantic and Pacific. Yes. And even most of the words. Yes. Um, And this would become one of the early grocery chains in North America. Chains were pretty much 
very regional mm-hmm. at that time, though A&P grew into like a much bigger thing. Um, in 1915, uh, Vincent Astor, son of John Jacob Astor, uh, had a concept for an inexpensive food market that, um, relied on large, large economies of scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he invested $750,000, which is about 18 million now, for an an open air mini mall in Manhattan. That sold everything in one place. Meat, produce, flowers, everything was there. Yeah. And he was like, okay, this would be great. People would come from all over, blocks away to get what they need. They didn't. Because they like their green grocer and they, they trust their, their butcher. They liked the place around the corner. Because yeah. everything was much smaller. They were more, you know, every neighborhood had what they needed. Right. You didn't need to walk ten blocks to get what you needed. You walked two. Um. So his... Uh, try only lasted until 1917. Now, in 1916, Clarence Sauter developed the concept of a self-service grocery store and opened the Piggly Wiggly in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first store we're going to mention that still lasts to this day. Uh, it did not sell meat or produce. It was not yet a full concept grocery store, Mm -hmm. but it did allow customers to get the products that they wanted and bring them to the register. Uh, The change of getting rid of clerks and allowing people to get what they wanted allowed for the shop floor to open up and them to carry four times as many products as a normal store. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the self-service idea was experimented with in other parts of the country around the same time. But it did not create such an impact as the Piggly Wiggly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what could? His new concept led him to change how his company and other companies marketed themselves and the products. Right. Um, He redesigned food food shopping, rearranging products into an order that appealed to the customer and not, like, ease of the clerk. Mm -hmm. And that included, like... Thinking about impulse shopping and, like, putting candy in, like, eye view. Right. And various things like that that we are is still in use now. Right. Where, where do you get a pack of gum at the grocery store? Checkout. Checkout, yeah. Thank uh, you, Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> so handheld shopping baskets were also introduced here. Ah. They were not in use before because people were either taking their own baskets mm-hmm. Or a clerk was just filling, like, a bag or something. Well, now we're all full circle living that tote life, huh? (laughs) Tote life. So he filed a patent for the store design, the means of tagging product prices next to the grocery item. Right, right. And then also for, like, giving shoppers a printed receipt from the adding machine. These are all things he patented. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which were not, like, being done. The Piggly Wiggly grew. By 1921, he had over 600 stores. And by 1923, there was 1,267 stores, (laughs) half of which he owned and half of which were franchised. Right. Yeah, other people were doing self-service, but it meant squat until he started expanding it to all these places. Right, right. And, like, you're not going to have more than one Piggly Wiggly in a town, unless it's a particularly large town. Yes. Right? So so this is a huge geographic area, you know, 1,200 communities. So in the 1920s, uh, the U.S. saw 
a chain store explosion. <laughs> uh, by this time, A&P had 10,000 stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, A&P is that tea company we talked about. Yeah. Um, and players like Kroger, Woo! which still exists, uh, King Kellen and uh, Ralph's came into the picture. Not King Ralph's. No. John Goodman's not involved. No. Okay. Um, and there's actually a pretty heated debate over the origin of the first supermarket. <laughs> but Food Marketing Institute and the Smithsonian. And if you uh, can't trust those two working together. <laughs> they did some research and they came to the conclusion of, first off, what the definition of a supermarket was. Sure. And that was a self-service store with separate product departments, discounted pricey pricing, marketing, and volume sales. Right. And they came to the conclusion that the first true supermarket, in the U.S. at least, was King Cullen. Congratulations. Uh, And this was opened by Michael Cullen in August 1920. And it was the really like the first time that all departments were combined Mm -hmm. that were still being sold separately. Because remember, Piggly Wiggly didn't have produce or meat. Right. Now we have all that. I'm sure they do nowadays. I, I should. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm... Since the 1920s, somewhere between then and now. Yes, but at the time. <laughs> One interesting thing about uh, grocery stores and supermarkets is how very regional they are. Yes. Even though these days there, there are very few companies, but they still maintain the regional identity. Well, and even for chains, like look at alcohol sales. Yeah. That's like the craziest thing when you go from one place to another is that in certain places... Kroger can't sell hard liquor, Mm -hmm. but in other places, like every place I've ever lived, they do. But like, I'm sure I've shopped at a store that shares the same corporate ownership as Piggly Wiggly. Yes. Though I have never shopped at a Piggly Wiggly. Yes. Because they're regional. Yeah. All the mergers and the buying and acquisitions where they keep the name, such as like, our local grocery store is a Mariano's, and it used to be owned by a different company, but now it is owned now by it, Kroger. Yeah. I, we technically <laughs> shop at Kroger again, even after leaving Michigan. But it is not called Kroger. Not a- and it does not look anything like a Kroger <laughs> in Michigan. <laughs> so throughout the 20s and 30s, uh, large mergers, mm-hmm. like we were just talking about, um, of regional st- stores became very popular. And in 1926, uh, Charles Merrill of Merrill Lynch uh, created the Safeway store Mm -hmm. um, by merging two regional chains first and then later actually buying much of the Piggly Wiggly locations on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. All of this up until this time, these self-service stores of all varieties had handheld baskets for customer use. And it wasn't until 1937 that the first shopping cart with wheels was introduced. Excuse me, it's called a buggy? I'm from southeast Michigan. Shut up. (laughs) I will disown you. (laughs) Sylvan Nathan Goodman was born in 1898 in Oklahoma. Congratulations. And uh, he is the hero of our story here. (laughs) Uh, His mother immigrated from France and his father from Latvia. And his mother's family owned various dry goods stores, and his father worked at one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he grew up around stores. (laughs) Uh, After World War I, he and his brother opened the Goodman Brothers Wholesale Fruits and Produce in Texas. Um, And due to the oil boom, they were initially very successful and then 
not. <laughs> That's how booms end. go. Booms end with busts. Uh, so they relocated to California and they worked uh, for grocery wholesalers out there before they were uh, returned to Oklahoma. Their uncles wanted to start their own food store chain. And they were like, hey, we'll put up the money if you guys run it. And they mm-hmm. were like, cool, let's do it. Thank you for the money. Okay, cool. And, you know, since they got all this, like, knowledge of, like, these new newfangled supermarkets out on the West Coast, they yeah. were like, cool, let's yeah. do it. And they founded Oklahoma's first supermarket and named it Sun Grocery Company in 1920 in Tulsa. Uh, Within one year, they had 21 stores throughout the state, and then within 355. Wow. They grew fast. They sold the chain to Skaggs Safeway, luckily for them, a few weeks before the stock market crashed. (laughs) Um, The sale did ban them, however, from competing with Safeway in Tulsa. So they relocated to Oklahoma City and bought five stores to start off a new company. Uh, And in 1934, they bought another failing chain and merged the two brands into the Humpty Dumpty stores. How many eggs do you think they sold at the Humpty Dumpty store? Was was that their their, uh, big ticket item? Maybe. Okay. I don't know. Sylvan was aware of the struggles uh, that often (laughs) women who were doing grocery shopping had to deal with Mm -hmm. in shopping stores. You know, they would maybe come with their kids, and they'd have their kids there, and then they'd be trying to carry around this basket. Right. And often, customers would stop shopping if the basket got too heavy or full. Mm-hmm. So initially, he told his staff, like, be on the lookout, keep an eye on customers' baskets. If they start to get full, switch out their basket, bring their stuff to the front, give them an yeah, empty one. this will be waiting for you at checkout. Here, here yes. you go. Yeah. But he... Question, like, how could he make it so customers could more easily move around the store and buy more food? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all in service to. Uh, So he brainstormed a basket being attached initially to a railroad-like track (laughs) and was like, okay, if that moves around and the customers can just kind of shuffle along like an assembly line, Mm -hmm. that could work. But he never did that. Can you imagine, like, one person's really comparison shopping the salsa, and then there are five aisles backed up. Right? It'd be awful. (laughs) And then there's that one person who's catching up with so-and-so for, like, two hours, and you're just like, well, dang, I live here now. Uh, So his next idea was a basket on wheels. Yes. Uh, He and his employee, Fred Young, worked on the first prototype which initially involved a folding chair with a basket and wheels attached to it as like uh these are random things we have what if we did something like this sure fine so that evolved into the first cart which became a metal frame that uh folded and unfolded and held two wire like handheld baskets Mm -hmm. like they fit in and with wheels of course it looked kind of like a like a walker, but with baskets on the side? Think of it like our granny shopping cart. Okay. Okay? It folds like that. Okay. Okay? It's collapsible. But then you got to put the basket in. Mm-hmm. You put two. There's some diagrams we're going to put, too, <laughs> for you people who, like, don't know what we're talking about. I found, like, like his concept art, Okay. basically. Yeah, this was his first idea, and he called it a folding basket carrier. 
Sure. Um, and then Arthur Costed developed a m- method for mass producing the carts on an assembly line that was capable of forming and welding the wires. Uh, so in 1940, a patent was given for the folding basket carriage for self-service stores. <laughs> uh, and he put it into use right away, but it really did not catch on. No. Uh, a 1977 interview that he did with CBS, or with CBS uh, he said, The housewives, most of them decided, no more carts for me. I have been pushing enough baby carriages. I don't want to push any more. <laughs> and he also said that basically the men were like, I have strong manly arms. And you think I couldn't carry a basket? Like, and like no one wanted to touch it except like old people. That sounds ridiculous. But also I know that when we, we bring the shopping home, I want to carry it all up to the apartment in one load and you can't stop me. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't put it in words, but yeah. Or like how many times do you go to the store and you're like, I don't need a basket. I can carry what I need. And then you're like, damn, I need a basket. What was I doing? <laughs> Pride. We all have stupid pride. (laughs) Uh, So what uh, he did was he hired models, Mm -hmm. both men and women, to walk around the stores using the carts. (laughs) He also hired greeters that greeted you at the door and offered to help you set up a cart and see how it worked. And if people were like, no, I'm good... They would use peer pressure and be like, but everyone else is using them. <laughs> and then... Don't you want to be cool? People would. People would use it because they felt weird not. Hey, everybody, look who isn't using the folding basket carriage for self-service stores over here. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so simple. Mm-hmm. A thing of like, no, we're just going to put some like sexy models over there walking around with it. And you're going to be like, I want to be like a sexy model. <laughs> Look at that man. Were they specifically sexy models? They didn't say sexy, but they did say attractive. Okay. He hired attractive models. Here in the latest fall collection, but don't look at those shoes. Look at the folding basket cart for self-service stores. <laughs> So three years after the introduction, uh, stores were being built uh, with larger aisles to accommodate, and they were now producing these carts for other places. Goldman continued to make modifications and tweaks to his design. Um, He tried to patent a new design he called a nest cart in 1948. Um, This was, however, a year after another inventor, Orla Watson patented a nesting cart uh, with the swinging part we know today. Yeah, the the nesting is, I think, the defining feature of a a shopping cart. Yes. As opposed to any other sort of cart. Yes. Well, Goodman's basically used the same nesting mechanism. Yeah, so that led to an investigation over infringement of patent since Watson filed his a year before. Naughty, naughty boy. Eventually, uh, Goodman bowed out. He paid a dollar in damages for counterfeit. (laughs) Uh, And Watson was like, hey, I'll give you an exclusive operating license, in addition to the three I've already granted, if I get royalties for every single cart you make. Hey. And that happened um and it was an exclusive licensing deal um Mm -hmm. 
So people were pretty annoyed by that because they also wanted to make these carts. Yeah, nesting carts are a good way to use your space. Um, so in 1950, the exclusive license was deemed invalid, and Watson uh, agreed to the same license to any manufacturer until the patent expired in the 60s. And Watson's still getting a cut of every cart on the line. Yep. Okay. Every single one. In researching all of this, I found out how much a shopping cart costs. Yeah, how much does a shopping cart cost these days on average? It's like 160 bucks. Wow, all right, yeah. Like, honestly, I kind of was thinking more. Mm-hmm. I guess if you get like all the like the sensor things that lock the wheels and uh, there's got like a be. basic metal shopping cart is like 160 and I'm like that's kind of less than I was expecting. There's got to be a bulk thing, right? Probably. This was if like If you're opening a new store. Yeah, like if you're opening an actual supermarket, oh yeah. Okay. But like this was like from a store warehouse place. Mhm. Goldman continued to tweak things i think i might have said goodman a lot earlier Just, at least once yeah goldman introduced a child seating area to the carts in 1947 ah uh, that's i think the really defining yes part. um though it wasn't until 1967 that david allen introduced a seatbelt for that oh yeah like you're really going at such high speeds there weren't even it's not high speeds. It's kids standing up. There weren't even seatbelts in all cars until the 60s. It's a child standing up and then falling out. <laughs> there was also some statistic. It's like 25% of kids in shopping carts get hurt because <laughs> they're stupid. And with your help, we can make that 100%. <laughs> I'm calling on every listener at home right now. I'm just thinking of, I think it was actually, it was a stroller. It was not a shopping cart. Oh, it was when we were at Disney. Yeah. There was this peop, these people with a stroller that were walking past us. And there was a kid that was, you know how there's like the storage area underneath? Yeah. The kid was like on their stomach, head at the front, just like laying in the storage area, like feet sticking out. Flying like Superman two inches off the ground beneath a stroller. Yes, it was yeah. amazing. I can just imagine kids doing that at the grocery store, though. <laughs> and then getting, like, a box of Pepsi on their head. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's how the shopping cart came to be. <laughs> uh, Goldman uh, and his wife were known for their philanthropy um, throughout Oklahoma and elsewhere. He he did a lot. Like, he was pretty wealthy. Mm -hmm. But he, he gave back. Uh, and he died in 19... 84 at 86, one week after the death of his wife of 53 years. Oh. Um, and before we close, I want to talk about a few more things that our good buddy Clarence developed. Yeah. This dude. What's Clarence up to these days? So. Those days. Uh, he attempted the first fully automatic automated grocery store in 1937. Uh, he called it Caduzzle. Caduzzle. Uh, it was basically a big vending machine. <laughs> so items were on display behind glass. Mm -hmm. Okay. And shoppers had like a key and they selected merchandise with their key. And that would punch holes in a paper that was then taken to the cashier. And the cashier would ring it up and the items would come down a conveyor belt to the cashier. But those products were never actually like automated mm -hmm. dropping there was actually like a crew back there that was like grabbing them and putting them on the conveyor belt 
Um, they were signaled via circuits, like, hey, <laughs> someone wants this cheese. Yeah, yeah. But it was all very complicated. Yeah. Circuits got me- messed up. Our circuits got mixed up. People got the wrong things. The belt couldn't handle enough stuff. Uh, he did open the store in May 1937 in Memphis, and it lasted a couple months. And then he tried again in 39 and 48, but nothing lasted more than a year. <laughs> um, and until his death, he kept brainstorming things. Uh, he also was developing an automatic store system called a food electric um, and this was basically the predecessor to a self-checkout. Right. Uh, his whole idea was customers would get their own items and act as cashier, but he never got around to opening it. Mm-hmm. Dude was ahead of his time. <laughs> Blow his mind what exists now. There's a food electric on every corner. That's not true. In pretty much every store, though. Yes. So uh, that is our take on on two items that i uh, appreciate that led me down a lot of history that i was not anticipating so we're gonna take a quick break and, and be back with our our final lessons and your letters hello everybody hello now, usually, there's something that happens before we take our break. What so, is darling, it? what did you learn? I enjoyed this episode because... Because I was kind of out of it. You're still pretty out of it. Well, now I'm tired. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed this episode because I think it is a great example of, of one of the, the lessons that this show teaches often, which is, you know, the interconnectedness of things, that if you pull on one little thread... You, you can find this whole tapestry attached to it. Yeah, and then you have 20 bajillion tabs open. <laughs> but the way that to, to have a shopping cart, you need to have a supermarket, which means there is a, a huge paradigm shift from the way people relate to their food, food which is central to, to life and the home. And like if you're going out and having big shopping runs, that means you're not doing daily shopping runs. That means that, you know, the, the homemaker has probably entered the workforce. That's where the timing hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to manage a supermarket with shelf-stable things that last that long, where we're talking about scientific production and preservatives. And once you have a a building big enough to fill with food, then you get like direct marketing of brand names and trademarks to consumers rather than staples being sold to, to dry goods stores. Yeah. And all of that comes in the story of the, the thing with the squeaky wheel that never goes perfectly straight for some reason. (laughs) Every time you're just trying to get some Wheaties. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we didn't even get into talking about like, any of it in other countries. Right. Because, like, the timeline is completely different for a lot of other places on introduction of supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely parts of the United States, but, like, other countries really delayed the onset of those bigger box stores. Mm-hmm. Where we live, mm-hmm. it is a crazy concept to think that you would grocery shop multiple times a week. <laughs> right, right. It is so not accessible Mm -hmm. or convenient and like so many other parts of the united states the way it's set up Mm -hmm. it's either you live in an urban environment where you don't have a car 
Or you drive 40 minutes for a grocery store. <laughs> and in a lot of other places, that's, you know, smaller places still exist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just interesting. I think one uh, parallel between the, the two broader topics we talked about today is, is that they're both examples of the way something new has to be presented to people yes. to catch on. You have to find a way to convince people that the thing they've been doing and getting along just fine their whole lives yeah. isn't good enough. It's not good enough. This is better. This is better. You're missing out. You're behind if you're not already on board with this brand new thing, whether it is inventing the category of period goods. Yes. Which I, I think is a better example of that than the actual facial tissue part of that segment. Or, yeah, just pushing a <laughs> Who cart. Who knew that the thing I wanted to talk about was less interesting than everything else to do I with it? I didn't say less interesting. <laughs> just a, a less strong example of the current point I'm making yeah. right now. <laughs> yes. Well, I just thought it was so interesting with, like, the shopping carts. Mm-hmm. Like, people wouldn't touch them. <laughs> like, I'm sure there are so many things in our lifetime that has been the same way Mm -hmm. like netflix right when netflix came out my college roommate was all about it and i was like i don't know like this is kind of strange it took me forever to cave to streaming (laughs) but now i don't know how i did without it or, or smartphones are a great example. Yes. I already have a cell phone, and I have a music player, and I have a computer at home. I, why I don't need this. Yes. And now we've built a world where you very much need this. You, ha- you have to have it. Yeah, if you want to engage with the world as people are making it today. Yes. But that brings us to what usually comes after the break. Letters. Letters. Our first letter comes in from Chris, who says hello. And, and we say hello back hello. to you, Chris. And uh, you wanted to know about something people couldn't live without. Yes, because I was thinking about tissues. (laughs) Chris could not live without their computer because they are a writer and a student. And both of those are, are, you know, based sitting at that keyboard. Very type heavy. And going to an older prompt, uh, Chris's favorite alien is Garrus Vakarian, the uh, uh, famous bug man of the, the... uh, Mass Effect franchise, the Smoochable Bugman. I'm not familiar with the Smoochable Bugman. You might like the Smoochy Bugman. Does he look like a bug, or is it because he's like sexy looking man that just <laughs> happens to have antenna? He has no antenna. He has sort of like plates. Uh, I'll sh- I'll show you a picture of Garrus later. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Ramona writes in. And also answers several prompts uh, for thing their life would be miserable without. They're going to go with medications. Yeah. Practical. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And then uh, something that makes uh, their life much more positive, their computer as well. Uh, Because they can talk to friends and look up stuff and do schoolwork and play games and listen to us and Mm -hmm. other podcasts. You can smooch Garrus Vakarian through that thing. I've, I'm told this. I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, Ramona also shares uh, a fact about Brendan Fraser, who we <laughs> talked about on a past episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brendan Fraser went to college with Ramona's parents. Oh, that's nice. And apparently he always invited them over for parties and stuff, but they thought he was kind of weird, so they didn't go. Little did they know that that weird guy would eventually be friends with Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Uh, and Ramona also gives us a prompt of 
what is Moki up to as we read this? Uh, and mentions that our dog is adorable. So, yes, she is. So Moki just finished a Kong. And now she is eating dinner. On her own. Thanks, Ramona. <laughs> Claritic has written to us as well. And the thing she wants to talk about today, uh, uh, something that she could not imagine a life without, is the Tower of Drauga, an arcade game. Oh, a classic video game that that in its structure, the the way it got players to come back and put in quarter after quarter, laid the foundations for so much of what gaming became. See, rather than just uh, difficulty, like Cubert uh, is really tricky. Oh my god, I played Cubert this weekend. It was awful. Cubert is really tricky, and then you eventually learn, you know, the patterns, but it just gets harder and harder and harder. That's typical for how uh, uh, an arcade game would eat your quarters. Mm-hmm. Tower of Drauga, very different. They, they used the, the arcade hardware of Pac-Man to make a game about a knight climbing a tower of maze-like floors with tricks and traps and secrets and treasures. Some of the treasures were required to beat the game, and some were really obscure. And, and, like, you had to input a secret code on a specific floor to make the treasure do anything sort of obscure. Mm -hmm. The way it was meant to work is that no one would beat it on their first try. It would instead become a focal point of the, the arcade, and people would do a run, try a few things, do some experimenting, and then talk amongst themselves and compare notes, and eventually, like, it would form a community around the cabinet of people trying to get to the top of the tower. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the, the, the game I played today, we both played? Yeah. In that event? It was, I wish okay. I could remember the name. It was a, a cube-themed, like a, a cube-aesthetic uh, Japanese rhythm game. Uh-huh. So, so imagine like Dance Dance Revolution, but instead of feet, it's just your fingers on a four by four square of squares. Yeah. We both walked up to play it. Yes. At C2E2. Yes. We really didn't know what it was. I was just waiting in line to see what this cube-shaped game was. When, and, when we were next in line, I figured, oh, it's probably a rhythm game. It looks like they're okay. tapping things rhythmically. So the first thing you gotta do is, like, choose a song. Yeah. That... I did not know that this was Dance Dance Revolution for my fingers. I was just like, oh, this is like background music for whatever this memory <laughs> game is going to be. I don't know. Apparently, you picked a really nice song that I... was like, boop, boop, boop. Yeah. Yeah. I picked the freaking Can Can Dance song. Which was a, a level three song. Which I couldn't hear for the first half of it because all I could hear was the bass of the person next to me. <laughs> And you're, like, doing this leisurely, like, like poke tap, buttons. Tap, 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 And boop, I was literally, boop. like, slamming on everything as fast as I could. Like, literally, every one of those was, I had to hit something. It was awful. So I'm having a good time. I'm feeling really good. Like, oh, yeah, I figured out this game. I see why this is fun. And then in the corner of my eye... Elena is like flipping out, like going like five times faster than me, clearly losing her composure. It was the, the best. You ended before me, and by the time you came over to me, I was swearing. <laughs> and my fingers had gotten numb from hitting it. <laughs> I was like, what happened? 
happened? What did I do wrong? Song selection is very important. I didn't know. It didn't say like level three. Don't pick this. <laughs> no instructions. So thanks, Claritic. One fine cat also wrote in uh, and answers quite a few prompts. So last book they read, The House of Leaves by Mark Danieleski. Uh, and it's about a photojournalist who moves into a new house with his family and discovers it's bigger on the inside. Very appropriate for Sunday. <laughs> Very appropriate for the previous 10 Sundays. Yes. And not again for months. Yep. <sighs> but apparently it's not really about that because it's written in the style of academic uh, criticism of the found footage movie created from his home videos. Mm -hmm. Sounds crazy. Also, uh, One Fine Cat's favorite mineral is hematite. Uh, favorite piece of public art is the bean. Favorite revolution, the Maccabean Revolt of 167 BC, um, which is the story of Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. uh, favorite part? <laughs> it's the story that's usually before the story of Hanukkah. <laughs> The, the big violent revolt before the whole oil part. Oh, the story that leads into Hanukkah. Yeah. There we A go. A lot of people only talk about the oil part. <laughs> Favorite part of 2019, one if I can't went to Israel for the first time, an object they cannot live without, also their medication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Medication's a good one. Yes. I get it. So, darling, what's something you can't live without? I have to have a water bottle. That's why you also have those all over the place. Yes. It's like I... signs in here, but they're usually empty. <laughs> I cannot get by without a water bottle <laughs> at all. Have to have that. Yeah. What about you? After this weekend, I, I, I was thinking about it when you asked the question. And after this weekend, I, I have decided that, yes, my, my gut instinct was correct. Shoes. Shoes. <laughs> I would be so miserable if I live, led the life that I lead without shoes. <laughs> well, we do live in Chicago. We could be awful. <laughs> you would have so many diseases. <laughs> I would have double tetanus. If you want to learn more about tetanus, you should listen to one of our past episodes. <laughs> That's true. That's true, actually. Yeah. Well, thanks to everybody for writing in. If you would like to send us an email, where can those go, dear? Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear your show suggestions. We want to hear your, your corrections, your questions, uh, any stories that you might want to share, anything else that, that you might like to contribute to this segment of the show, yeah. including responses to our usual prompts. You got a prompt? I would like to hear people's favorite saint. Julie Andrews. <laughs> Not all nuns are saints, dear. It's not official yet, but, like, <laughs> come on. And those can once again go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And, and while you're getting in touch with us that way, you can also follow along on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or all of them, you know. Mm -hmm. History Honeys. You can also uh, give us a rating and review at, at Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that gives you the option because uh, we enjoy the feedback and we enjoy the, the boost in our uh, uh, algorithmic alchemies yeah. to, to try to find more of our people. You can also tell a friend. Tell a friend. Uh, we might be getting listened to by uh, one of the, the game designers responsible for a, a new board game coming out that listeners of our show would probably be interested in. It's an H.H. Holmes Murder Castle game. Yeah, the, the game is actually called Crimes in History, H.H. Holmes's Murder Castle. Yeah. Uh, it is in uh, uh, pre-orders now. We just played a, a 
a play test earlier this afternoon, or mm-hmm. it was actually the, this morning. Yes, um, and it is from BlueprintGamingConcepts.com. Uh, it was quite fun. Uh, I liked that they incorporated a lot of historical things mm-hmm. ab- that go with the story. So they referenced, you know, life insurance fraud mm-hmm. and gas vents and trapdoors and all the things that in my episode I actually said, well, there's not a lot of evidence actually that says that was true. But it's fun to believe. But it's fun. Also, uh, every player has, you know, a, a character that they play with a special ability, and each of them are actual historical figures. Yes. Uh, uh, associates of Holmes. The, the story of the game is things have gotten to a point where it's impossible to ignore, and the cops are trying to peg anyone they can you are going through the murder castle collecting evidence to exonerate yourself and implicate Holmes instead of you. Yes. Except Holmes is in there, so you better watch out. Yes. It was good. I liked it a lot. And the guy from Blue Concepts who was running the game was really great. Yes. Um, I was a little tentative about playing, not going to lie. Because <laughs> it takes me a really long time to pick up games, but he was great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I picked up on it very fast. But, yes, the, the segue was, we told him about the show, so you can tell people about it, too. Yeah. <laughs> he better listen now, because we gave him a promotion. <laughs> but I suppose that's all we have to say uh, uh, for this episode. So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.